0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. The Prince of Darkness wrought havoc on the souls of 17th century Christians living throughout the Atlantic world. Whether they called him Satan, the Devil, Beelzebub, or by any other name, Lucifer tempted men and women to break their covenant with God in heaven and do his dark bidding on earth. At a time of great religious upheaval, when the Protestant Reformation swept through Europe and across the ocean to England's American colonies, fears of Satan's benevolent influence and the search for signs of his deeds were particularly intense in Scotland. A reformation driven largely by the Scottish clergy and gentry inspired Scots to see the devil's works in their everyday lives, question their salvation, and steel themselves against the possibility of eternal damnation. And just like in Salem, Massachusetts in the 1690s, Scots saw witches among them. Between the mid-1560s and early 1730s, Scots accused nearly 4,000 people of being in league with the devil. They executed many of these alleged conspirators. On today's show, Dr. Michelle D. Brock helps us understand why Satan held such powerful sway over Reformed Scotland, how Scottish witch hunting compared to the colonial New England experience, and perhaps the ultimate question, in dealing with the supernatural, how do we know what we know? Brock is Associate Professor of History at Washington and Lee University. She is the author of the book Satan and the Scots, The Devil in Post-Reformation Scotland circa 1560 to 1700, which was published by Rutledge in 2016. More recently at W&L, Brock, along with Chris R. Langley of Newman University, is the co-director of Mapping the Scottish Reformation, a digital mapping and biographical exploration of Scottish clergy between 1560 and 1689. Be sure to check out a link to this project in the show notes for this episode. And with that, let's hunt Satan and Scotland and the Atlantic world with Michelle D. Brock. Yeah, I was thinking about Stanton today where you live and, you know, thinking of how it's sort of nestled in the mountains. And uh, I, I, you often find yourself wondering if a lot of the Scots who settled in Virginia did so because it kind of looked like home.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that that's at least partially the case. Yeah, um, I I don't know. I mean, I, it's not something I study mm-hmm. in particular, but yeah, there there's probably part of that.
0: It does have um, Stanton. I, I always I like where you live, but it's like sort of has like a a, a bit of a heavenly quality. And so I was um, I was thinking about today's conversation and sort of wondering then, you know, when when was the moment that you let the Prince of Darkness into your heart and uh, began a personal relationship with his dark satanic majesty.
1: <laughs> I get asked this question a lot. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, you know. So, so the the, the very specific answer to that question um, is that when I was young, um, I I grew up in sort of an evangelical Protestant mm-hmm. background, and I, you know went to Christian camps and these sorts of things, and I always had a little bit of trouble grasping certain aspects of belief. I mean, I understood the broader sort of corpus that we have of things that we were supposed to think and do. Yeah. But but the belief bit was always elusive to me. And I could never really personally connect with it. And so mm-hmm. I think in some ways my interest in studying um religion and, and studying, you know, the devil in particular is, is born of a desire to understand why people believe the way that they do and behave the way mm-hmm. that they do. Um, and, you know, as a kid as well, I should say, I was also really interested in the supernatural. So I would check out books on werewolves and vampires <laughs> and the Salem witch trials and things like that from my public library. So I'm sure, I'm sure I had a reputation <laughs> at my local sort of like, you know, local library. Um, and so one of the things that I think is so interesting about the devil is it's a way for me to get at both traditional religious beliefs right some Mm -hmm. orthodox beliefs because of course it's hard to imagine christianity without satan as he's such a pivotal figure yeah um but also a way to sort of study the cult as well and Mm -hmm. and and of ways of thinking about the world beyond the natural one that people find particularly interesting and fascinating so satan sort of bridged that that gap for me um and then I really—I mean, I—the reason I picked the book project—I was always broadly interested in this stuff. But I, um, my doctoral supervisor and I, were one day discussing the Scottish witch hunts. Which uh, involved quite a lot of belief in the devil. And mm-hmm. I said, Well, has anybody written a book on the devil in Scotland? And he said, No. And I said, Well. So, and then, <laughs> and then, hence my doctoral project was born.
0: So, so did you, you didn't have Scotland in mind immediately. It was just sort of out of that conversation that came about between you and your advisor. Or were you already studying Scotland at that
1: point? I, I was already studying Scotland. Okay. I was already studying um, broadly sort of early modern Britain. My doctoral supervisor, Brian Levack, right, wrote um, on the witch hunts and mm-hmm. also. On law in in both England and Scotland so I, I knew that I was broadly interested in Scotland partially because I'd studied abroad there um, I see as an undergraduate and of course like every other plucky young American you, know, you go to Edinburgh and you see the castle and you go to the highlands and see um, the mountains and when I learned that the witch trials in Scotland were particularly intense that was mm-hmm. sort of a hook for me
0: um, well, I do want to talk about that in a little bit because I do want to draw some comparisons between what happens in Scotland in the 17th century, what happens in New England in the 17th century. But let's talk more broadly first about the religious experience in 17th century Scotland in which your, your study of the devil takes place. What's happening in Scotland in this period that, that begins to, I don't know if it, it's making people more acutely aware of, of the devil's presence in their lives or at least uh, encouraging them to look closer at uh, whatever kind of mischief he might be getting into
1: yeah, so the parameters of my study, um, my my book began in fifteen sixty, so with the Scottish Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends in the very early eighteenth century, so quite a broad scope. And this is is a period of religious development, religious change. Um, and in some cases, particularly in the 17th century, quite a lot of upheaval. Um, the Scottish Reformation, in case listeners are not you know, sort of super up to speed on this, it takes a very different form than the English Reformation mm-hmm. does, right? Um, everybody knows about the English Reformation and Henry VIII and. Um, basically, in some ways, paving a road to a break with the Catholic Church because he wants to sleep with someone who wasn't um, his wife at the time, right? <laughs> and, and, and the English Reformation was very much top-down, right, through legislation and decisions made by the monarch. It's a very different case in Scotland, um, where I wouldn't say the Reformation was bottom-up in any sense, but it was mm-hmm. sort of middle-out. So the nobility and um, the clergy increasingly start, for political as well as religious reasons, to break from um, the Catholic church and, and Catholic leadership in Scotland at the time. And from the very inception, right, these reformers in Scotland, like reformers in a lot of places in Europe, had this view of the world as being torn in this cosmic struggle between God and the devil. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're increasingly prone, of course, to see their enemies as in league with Satan. Now, this isn't new to the early modern period. But what you have after the Reformation in Scotland in particular is quite a lot of preaching about this topic, right? The sermon is the centerpiece Mm -hmm. of the Reformation in Scotland, which is very much about seeking religious purity and thoroughness among the population Um, as opposed to in England, where I think the changes were much more structural in their inception about sort of sovereignty and power um, rather than theology necessarily. So all the preaching about the devil is really critical. Um, This is also a period in which, at least among the elites who are literate and paying attention to these things, they, they think they're living under the shadow of the last days, right? That the apocalypse is just around the corner. And as such, um, and this is actually something that Augustine wrote about. So again, it's not new, it just gets grasped onto. Yeah. The idea from the book of Revelation that in the last day, Satan is loosed from his chain. Um, and because they really believe this, they're looking around them and seeing various levels of chaos by the time we're in the mid 17th century warfare, and really interpreting that as evidence of, of the devil's role in the world.
0: You said that a, a lot of what's driving this in, in Scotland is not the from top down, but it's the no, nobility, it's the clergy. So who are some of the, the major clerics who are you know preaching about the devil, warning of the last days, you know, encouraging their flocks to repent uh, before it's too late. Even though you know we can talk about predestination as well, but uh, for some of them it's already too late. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, so we know that, you know, John Knox, who's, of course, the father of the Scottish Reformation in so many ways, um, wrote about the devil and and preached about the devil and and mentioned sort of the wiles of Satan in this very apocalyptic militaristic frame in some of his writings. We don't have many of Knox's sermons, actually, Mm -hmm. and most of the sermons that we do have are coming from the sort of middle of the 17th century during the height of the covenanting movement, which was really a rebellion against the, the current King of Britain at the time, uh, the King of England in Scotland, I should say, Charles I, who'd been using some sort of heavy-handed policies um, in Scotland as elsewhere. And these Scottish covenanters really saw their struggle, their personal struggle and their communal struggle as part of a broader mm-hmm. battle against Satan. So folks like Samuel Rutherford writing really passionate sermons about the devil. He's sort of a leading um, Covenanter, Zachary Boyd, Michael Bruce—they're the names of a lot of these guys from the mid-17th century spanning roughly 1638 to um, the 1660s who talked a lot about Satan and his involvement in the world. Um, and And for them, I think as well, they saw, they were at various points victims of a certain degree of persecution, although I should say they did a lot of persecuting as well. Um, and that those sort of struggles could be framed in, in sort of demonic terms.
0: So what does the concept of predestination fit in here? Early Americans teach about predestination in the New England context. And I'm curious to see how it is operating in sort of the same manner in Scotland in this period, and then how this battle between Satan and, and God fits into this. And, and if it's if God has had loosened Satan in the last days and is ushering in the apocalypse, and some people have already been determined to be saved and others are not going to be saved, is there a space in there in which the devil, in a sense, has free will to wreak all the kind of havoc he wants to?
1: Yeah. So this is that's a really great question, and I think it's one of the more complex pieces of this story mm-hmm. because... The guiding question when I started this work as a graduate student on the devil was, OK, if one believes in double predestination, right, that God preordains, creation of the mm-hmm. world, who is saved and who is damned, if that's fixed and if no one can ultimately know God's mind either, then what role is there for the devil? right? If the devil can't literally drag people to hell, what role can he play if he can't mm-hmm. actually affect salvation? And one of the things that I, that I argue in the book um, and, and in my lectures and things when I talk about this is within the realm of reformed theology, where you have this heavy emphasis on predestination, Satan becomes, and in some ways, again, this is a return. Many things are a tool of God first and foremost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a being that isn't an, his sort of autonomous operating unit, but a being that that does the, the um, the dirty work in some ways of God's divine plan, punishing those who deserve to be punished, challenging the godly and encouraging them to be better. And part of that idea uh, of the devil as sort of God's hangman, right? Which is how he's (laughs) often spoken about, was also the idea that because of original sin, Mm -hmm. humanity was so profoundly fallen, just beyond redemption. The only thing good that could be done by by humans were, was because of the grace of God, because of that sinfulness, humanity was actually really close to the devil and almost and in a sort of spiritual sense. That is to say, humans were always leading towards sin. They were always wanting to be dragged away by Satan because they have fundamentally base instincts. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons as well that Satan remains a really critical part of religious life in Scotland, even if he can't directly affect salvation is because of this emphasis on sin and Satan as sort of part of the same fallen coin, right? Um, Mm -hmm. We'll need to constantly be combating. Um, And you know, this leads to a lot of what I think are really fascinating sermons in the period in which a minister will say, God has one part of your heart maybe because you've begun this process of sanctification. But the other part of your heart is held by the devil perpetually. Um, There's another great quote from a sermon about um, the devil leads humans like dogs on a leash because they're so bound to him, right, that they're part of the same fallen natures. And this, you know, this led to a lot of people having these intense moments of self-scrutiny, wondering if they have so much evidence of of leaning towards the devil within them that it's a sign of their reprobation, right? Um, so it gets sort of bound up in this, you know, fascinating and and troubling cocktail of anxiety about one's sin and fear of a ubiquitous devil who's constantly tempting you.
0: Well, that does seem like a hellish kind of existence to live, right? Because you're constantly <laughs> being torn apart. Like you you don't know whether or not you've been saved. You kind of hope you do, but at the same time, uh, god has loosened the chain and is using satan as a weapon against you so even though you might be saved you're still you still might suffer Uh, yeah
1: and part of the idea is of course is that suffering is part is part of godly life right i mean Mm -hmm. it's sort of the the story of Job expanded out in in really massive and profound ways and Mm -hmm. in, in fact you know there also was this idea that that Satan will come after those who are the most godly because they're the ones who most upset him, and he's given sort of the, the permission and the will by God to do this. And, you know, there's been a debate among historians who are interested in questions of Calvinist theology, Reformed theology, about whether or not it was fundamentally an anxiety producing mm-hmm. negative doctrine. Or whether the idea of predestination was ultimately this massive source of comfort that no matter what happened, no matter how much you erred, as all humans did, you would eventually be delivered into the arms of God, right, because of, of, of mercy. And I have to say, I fall down on in the, the former camp. I think, at least in what I've seen, there were some Scots who had a lot of spiritual confidence who didn't who um, didn't, you know, constantly worry about salvation and instead could focus on combating Satan and see that as part of the godly path. Mm-hmm. But I think there were far more who heard all of these sermons about Satan or saw evidences of, of witchcraft or, or whatever in their communities and really worried about their own inherent sinfulness to the point where some even contemplated suicide. Um, so, wow. So I think it was this emphasis on self-surveillance and searching for the demonic within your own heart as part of the process of being in covenant with god was not an easy process at all
0: so as they're doing the soul searching uh so to speak what are they looking for i mean how does signs of the devil's work manifest itself in in everyday life you know clerics are arguing theologically about the devil's doing and how to and how to frame this moment for their constituencies and for their for their flocks but what are what are people seeing what are people feeling that leads them to believe that the devil is trying to tempt them
1: yeah that's a great great question um we have and the source for this i should say is spiritual diaries which Mm. is not is not a representative source right most people are not going to be making records of their spiritual experiences. But a lot of people are. Um, Some are written for public consumption, so they follow a very clear script of what it means to be combating the devil. But others weren't. Some were written for more sort of private diary keeping, which becomes a really popular practice in both the Puritan world and in the sort of Scottish Presbyterian world. And they see all sorts of things as evidence that that the devil is tempting them. any sort of evil negative thoughts. Um, One of the things that I think is important for students to understand when I talk about this is reformed theology insisted that you controlled not only your words and your actions, but also your thoughts, which is a profoundly difficult thing to do. (laughs) And so, you know, some I've seen diaries where people have written about having negative thoughts about someone else that were ungodly, unchristian, uncharitable, and thinking that maybe the devil was involved. Um, temptations of the flesh, right? These would of course be interpreted as that. Trouble staying awake during sermon time. Could mm-hmm. that be a sign of, of the devil sort of speaking <laughs> within your heart? So a lot of, of different things get framed that way. Now that doesn't mean every Scot believed this, right? Sure. But, but among the elites who are really invested in, in these theological narratives, um th- this caused just an incredible amount of consternation i mean if we we all have thoughts that we would never ever want anybody to hear you know things that are, are not <laughs> not ideal and and people interpreted that as as a sign of the devil's temptation
0: so when you're talking about not all scots are, are having these thoughts one of the things that comes to mind is there a geographic divide where uh, the, the reformation in scotland has taken hold opposed to others i mean a lot of our listeners may know that that geographically we can think of Scotland in two distinct regions. The lowlands were Edinburgh and Glasgow and and places like that. But then moving north, uh, you get into the highlands and the Mm -hmm. islands are associated with that space as well where Catholicism really had a stronghold uh, in the northern regions. And so is there a geographic divide in the religious sense as well?
1: Yeah, there is. Um, I think it's hard to make a perfect comparison between Mm -hmm. lowland Scotland and the highlands for for a couple of reasons. Obviously, we do, we tend to have for, because of these sort of urban centers in the lowlands, better records. Sure. Uh, so it's in some ways hard to gauge the extent to which, even in more settled areas of the highlands, and of course, the highlands were much more settled in the period that I'm looking at than mm-hmm. than now, but still more spread apart than these urban centers in the lowlands. We just don't have quite quite the same resources. Now, there were pockets of Catholicism in the highlands, but actually, I think some folks have sort of interpreted Catholicism as the driving force behind, say, by the time we get to the 18th century, the Jacobite Rebellion. Mm, There were actually more committed Episcopalians uh, in the Highlands than there were Catholics, which is really interesting. Although there, of course, are very famously Catholic clans, McDonald's and so forth. (laughs) So so there were differences. And and one of the main reasons, I think, that you get much more of this full-throated reform theology in the lowlands. Mm -hmm. While in the highlands, there's still the the, the preservation of some of these traditional Catholic beliefs, as well as folkloric beliefs and fairies and things like that really um, still continue to flourish in the highlands, is because of the fact that basically every single parish in the lowlands has a Kirk session. Mm. And the Kirk session is a local, for listeners who don't know, is a local ecclesiastical court that's charged with enforcing morality in a given parish. So basically, you know, dragging anyone before the session, which is made up of a number of elders drawn from the community for things like drunkenness, um, sleeping on the Sabbath, fornication, adultery, all of these sorts of moral crimes. And the Kirk Session, and this is the subject of of Margot Todd's really wonderful book on the culture of Protestantism in Scotland, Hmm. was, I think, the biggest reason why the Scottish Reformation, at least in the lowlands, was so thoroughgoing, because the elders who made up the Kirk Session were drawn from the local community. Ordinary people came before the Kirk Session as witnesses, as defendants, as parts of these cases. And so it became sort of a vehicle for enforcing the things that were done in Kirk on the Sabbath day. They could be mediated through the Kirk session. Um, The Kirk session also dealt with things like poor relief, which, of course, made Mm -hmm. it a very appealing body um, in a lot of respects. There are not as... Many kirk sessions up in the Highlands, they certainly have them. Mm-hmm. But the great distances in some of these places can make it a bit harder to get to and from a kirk session um, to have as frequent meetings. So, so I would say there's certainly Reformed theology and you know commitment to some of these ideas in the Highlands, but there's less control um, on the part of these local mm-hmm. local parish kirk sessions. It
0: makes me think of another question and thinking about sources of evidence. I mean, we. The devil is a supernatural figure. He he may be tempting you, but in ways that he's not exactly writing down and, and sending mm-hmm. you a letter, or, or maybe he is. But how do you, as a historian, deal with supernatural evidence and and use that to interpret what people are thinking, feeling, mm-hmm. and trying to understand this moment?
1: Yeah, this is another really good question. Um, so the first thing that I, I'll say about that. So students will often ask me things like this. You know, how yeah. will how do we know any of this stuff? And I often say, and maybe this is a controversial thing to say, but God is just as unknowable as the devil, mm-hmm. right? God mm-hmm. is just as unknow- unknowable as fairies and angels and, you know, elves, anything that sort of operates in the preter or supernatural realms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're asking about this question of belief, all we have is what, as you say, people write down. What they say yeah. about their experiences, what they say before a court, what they say in a sermon, what they say in a letter, what gets printed in a pamphlet or a broadside detailing something fallacious. So I think it's important to think of belief um, and belief in the devil or belief in God. It's as much a an event as an ethos, right? There's Mm -hmm. the event of when you pronounce your belief. It's an event when you make this diary. It's an event when you're sitting in Kirk and your mind is starting to wander and you think the devil is sort of drawing you somewhere else. Those things are events, but together they're an ethos, Mm -hmm. right? They're they're something that's informing one's patterns um, of behavior and practices. And I say ethos rather than ideology because I think ideology implies something much more thoroughgoing, and Scottish demonic belief isn't bounded really narrowly, even within the sort of strict Reformation context. It's actually can fall along a spectrum. Some people have more traditional beliefs, that is to say, beliefs that are more similar to, you know, folklore or or Catholic beliefs. Some are thoroughly reformed. Most are somewhere in the middle. And we can only attempt to tease out belief um, from, from these records. And in the Book, I you know which I wrote four years ago, but it's fun to to talk about again. It seems um, gosh time time flies when you're trying to get tenure. I guess <laughs>
0: Satan's always a good topic, so yeah, he's, he's always, always a good topic. He's always um, fresh.
1: One of the things that I tried to do <laughs> with the book was make sure that I was looking not just at strict theological works, yeah. not just at sermons, but and not just at spiritual diaries, but also pamphlets, mm-hmm. court records, witchcraft documents, and that sort of thing. Um, to the question of, does it matter whether or not it was true? Yeah. And you know, This is something, again, that I get asked a lot. Well, were they actually experiencing the devil? And th- it's a hard question to answer because I don't want to be completely relativist about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be entirely, well, they thought it was real. So therefore it was, which, you know, it was real for them, right? Um, there's, there's obviously no doubt in my mind that for, for most folks, that was the case. Although I probably not for everyone. Um, but at least you know explicitly so we're never going to be able to it's beyond the realm of whether Mm -hmm. or not historians are not going to be able to prove or disprove the devil or prove or disprove god or anything like that Um, but we know it it mattered for people so i have to say i'm still thinking through how to answer that question Mm -hmm. right Um, were they really experiencing this and you know it's it's interesting i feel quite comfortable saying in the context of early modern witch belief that people were not going to demonic Sabbaths and engaging in orgies with the devil. I mean, there's no, obviously that did not transpire. Um, Or in the case of Scotland, they really believed in the demonic pact that a witch would copulate with Satan, Mm -hmm. um, thus sort of giving her soul to him in exchange for something, and then would embark on this sort of servitude and all these terrible heretical behaviors. Obviously demonic witchcraft did not actually happen. I think those executed in Scotland and elsewhere for witchcraft were, were killed for an imagined crime. Mm -hmm. So I'm willing to say that, but then I'm not really sure how to deal with the idea of someone believing that the devil came to them at night and tempted them, or uh, it's, it's interesting what we feel comfortable saying was definitively false and Mm -hmm. what we don't feel comfortable saying was false. And it's, to me, it's bound up in all these really interesting questions about The ways in which we categorize the supernatural. Sure. Yeah. So, if you ask, if I ask my students, is are fairies and ghosts supernatural? They all say yes. If I say, okay, well, what about vampires, zombies, whatever? And technically, these things are preternatural, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Um, And then I say, well, what about the devil? And most of them say, yeah, supernatural. Mm -hmm. But then I say, what about God? And a lot of my students say, well, God's not supernatural. And I say, well, if you were, I mean, if you were a person in the period that I study, actually God is technically the only supernatural being because Mm -hmm. God is you know, above and beyond nature. Everything else is preternatural, it's working slightly outside the bounds of of nature, but it's still fundamentally constrained by it.
0: Sure. Um,
1: And I think we use supernatural actually as a way to describe things that are no longer normative. and it's interesting how we put things that have the same provability in different categories. Um, and I think it has to do with modern beliefs and the ways in which we differ from the past.
0: Well, that, that makes total sense. And th- in thinking about then supernatural versus uh, what's provable, uh, as, you, as you pointed out just a minute ago, there is witchcraft uh, mm. or the um, suggestion of witchcraft uh, or the accusations of witchcraft in Scotland And I think if I heard you rightly earlier in the top of this conversation, you said it was much more intense in Scotland than what we had experienced or not. We didn't experience it, but what Puritans experienced in New England in the 1690s. So what was it about Scotland, Scotland's reformed theology, their relationship with God and the devil that made witchcraft and witch hunting so much more intense there than it might have elsewhere?
1: Yeah, so I should say... New England's witch witch hunts were very intense, but bounded by a very short amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. The the witch trials um, in Salem in particular are are very late on the sort of chronology of of, um, witch hunting in Europe, right? Most of the witch trials have actually ended in early modern Europe and in Scotland, I should say, by the time you have um, the Salem witch trials in the early 1690s. So yeah, and, and, Scottish witch hunting was far more intense than, um, than English witch hunting. In fact, if you were proportionally because of population, if you were a woman in early modern Scotland, you were 12 times more likely to be accused of witchcraft than your English counterpart. Jeez. Um, and, and, and actually, you know, the, so there are a number of reasons for this. Um, and some of them actually, I think, show both the similarities and differences mm-hmm. between Scotland and New England in particular. Um, so I guess you can sort of think about three main reasons why witch hunting is so intense in Scotland. Um, for one, and, and historians have written about this, they had at least in the, in the sort of first phase of witch hunting in the late 16th century, a monarch in James VI of Scotland who was deeply invested in pursuing the crime of witchcraft because he believed that he himself had been a victim of malevolent witchcraft.
0: So that's one of the things I found so fascinating is he, and he authors a tract on demonology, right? He
1: does, in 1597. Um, and he's the only European monarch, It's, uh, so I guess, a claim to fame to ever, uh, <laughs> to ever author one of these. And, you know, I don't think he introduces new ideas into Scottish witch hunting. Some, for a long time historians thought maybe he did, but I actually think, um, he just gives it sort of the the sort of good housekeeping stale of approval, right? Mm-hmm. The monarch stale of approval, this is going on. Um, so I think politically, there's the climate that encourages witch hunting. Um, by the time James ascends the throne in England, he becomes far less interested in pursuing witchcraft. He doesn't push it there at all. He actually becomes a skeptic by the time you get to some cases oh. in the 16-teens. Partially, this is he's older, he's more mellow. He's also having to deal with like lots of, you know, things going on Puritans and Catholic plots and all of that stuff by the time he's king of England. Um, so the political side is important. Um, the legal side is also really critical. Scott's law has a, a sort of different system that ep- empowers the clergy and the state to go after presumed witches to initiate mm-hmm. hunts in the way that in England they follow a much more, um what we would call an accusatorial system, where those cases need to be brought rather than pursued, which makes a difference um, in the legal systems as well. I think in England, if I'm remembering correctly, you only have you have to have you know the um, the entire jury convict a witch. In Scotland, you don't; it just has to be a majority. There are all sorts of different recourses. The biggest legal difference, actually, for why the hunts are so intense in Scotland, um, is they torture. They torture witches. Oh, they do it a little bit during the English Civil War in England in the 1640s when the Puritans are in charge and they're not especially well trained and and actually that's a similarity to Salem as well. One of the problems with the judges in the Salem cases is that they're not they're not particularly they're not you know legal scholars really um, by and large. Some of them are failed merchants and other other things. So that that is part of it. Um, but torture, of course leads to more and more accusations, right? Because people will confess to kind of outlandish demonological crimes and it becomes a self-legitimating narrative, right? People confess to right. it. So folk thinks it's more true and they want to go seek it out. Um, when
0: when they're confessing, is that a strategy to get out of trouble then by accusing somebody else?
1: I think maybe, I think it's partially a trouble uh, strategy to stop, the, the pain from happening. Yeah, well, and just,
0: obviously <laughs> that, yeah.
1: Those <laughs> are really leading questions, right? Yeah. Who else is a witch? Mm. That, those sorts of things. Um, in Scotland, you were supposed to, to petition the Privy Council if you wanted to go after uh, someone for witchcraft, sorry, if you wanted to use torture. You had to petition the Privy Council. It was supposed to be tightly regulated, but local magistrates sort of did what they wanted mm. in at, at certain moments, not throughout, but in the moments that are considered sort of panics. Um, And that leads to to more and more. And then the third thing I'll just say um, is, and then the the standards for evidence were a lot higher in England as well. But the third thing was this religious climate, right? Um, I think belief in the devil and anxiety about the devil is in some ways fairly causal. That is to say areas where there's more anxiety about Satan, you get more witch trials. Um, And in England, even if you just look at the literature, the devil is involved, but he's not as as center stage as he is in a lot of Scottish cases. And also just, you know, the clergy in Scotland, like in New England, in some respects, were really, really invested in pursuing the purest society that they could, right, Mm -hmm. and eradicating sort of any you know, presumed sinfulness, malicious, heretical behavior in their midst. So I think that's part of it as well. So,
0: And, and as the clergy are pushing this, is this a uh, born out of a desire both to create that pure society, as you suggest, but also to reinforce their own authority?
1: Yeah, so this is interesting. I think, so it's it's partially but not entirely about social control. Mm. You know, social control is, a, is an explanation I think people like because it's easier to understand than to understand that folks really believed in this.
0: Sure, yeah. You know,
1: that this was a genuine fear. But I do think that it's, I think that they were both very deeply invested in purifying society and it also helped reify their own power, which then could allow them to help purify society. But, but I think the social control motive is actually more true in Salem um, because you have Samuel Paris, who had been mm-hmm had this sort of failed career. He's, he's just, he's a hot mess. He's not great. Um, And he, he's there, you know, two different sort of factions within um, Salem town and Salem village. One supports him, one doesn't. And so he really has this chip on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. So I think Samuel Paris goes hard after the witches in Salem as a way to prove himself. Um, So I actually, I think I'm more comfortable saying that about Salem than Scotland for, for a range of interesting reasons. Well,
0: and then it makes sense to me. I mean, I I, I defer to your expertise on Scotland, but, and I know, I know enough about Salem to, to be able to teach it to my students. But yeah, mm-hmm. we, we always say that, you know, there's, yes, we have to accept the fact that people believe that the devil was real. But if you look at, you know, for instance, maps between Salem town and yeah. Salem village, you look at economic conditions and you look at personal relationships, there was a whole lot more going mm-hmm. on there than just the devil lurking around and and people are using this as a weapon against other people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would still just personally argue that it's that I think it is mostly sort of the religious fervor, the anxieties about mm-hmm. being in the wilderness, right, with um, indigenous groups sort of being painted as the devil's minions lurking beyond. But there were, as you say, these social tensions as well. Um, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever read Emerson Baker's Storm of Witchcraft, but it's mm. came out a year or two ago, and I think it's the best book on Salem. I used to assign... Um, uh, Salem Possessed by Boyer and Nissenbaum, which has those great maps, mm-hmm. but I, I thought it was too much of a sort of social and economic analysis rather than a the- a religious one. So, Emerson Baker's Storm of Witchcraft, I recommend it to the listeners oh. <laughs> as, as if they want to learn about Salem, it's great.
0: I'll have to check that out. And actually, I was going to ask you if, if you have ever read Mary Beth Norton's um book on the Salem witch trials, and yeah you know, part of it, what she's arguing is that the memory of, of indigenous warfare in the decade prior really shaped how people thought about the wilderness and and about the devil's presence in those spaces.
1: Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot to, to recommend that, particularly if you look at some of the rhetoric and some of the confessions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think as with all of these things, there's no one perfect explanation. Exactly. Um, in fact, that's the, this book, Storm of Witchcraft, he, he says it, that it's just a perfect storm. So yeah. it's all of these things, right? It's, it's divisions within the town. It's the memories of these indigenous conflicts and this continued perception of being under assault. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing about reform theology in its either Puritan variant or it's Cal- you know, sort of Presbyterian mm-hmm. variant within Scotland is there's this constant emphasis on being under assault, right, of, of, yeah. of constantly being under siege, um, of constantly struggling against, you know, religious dissent and failing. And it's, it's interesting to think about that in the three countries, because in England, of course, Puritans were certainly by the 1620s. If there was a Jacobean sort of consensus on Puritan theology that's dead by the time, you know, James dies and Charles takes the throne, and, and, so they, they're actually genuinely in the, the minority um, yeah. in the context of England in the 17th century, but they're not in Scotland. Even when the crown is using really heavy-handed policies, they're not in the minority. The mm-hmm. um, the, the sort of reformed Protestants and then and the rabid Presbyterians are, at least in the middle of the century, in the ascendant right at the top, although they lose some of that. But they still use this idea of being the new Israelites and, and as part of that being constantly under siege. And this is true in Salem as well, right? That's a fundamental part of the narrative. And if they're not under siege from within, they have to be under siege from without. And that's where the sort of role of indigeneity and, and attitudes towards mm-hmm. um, groups that come into it. So I think that's an interesting connecting thread.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. And, and then in the thinking about all of that as well, and in Scotland, you know, what what counted as evidence of witchcraft? What, what was, concrete evidence that the devil had taken uh, a servant and was using that servant in nefarious ways.
1: Yeah, one of the things they were, well, so I should say it's hard, it's hard to get most courts, uh, and this is actually not just true in Scotland, this is true broadly in early modern Europe, wanted either you know two eyewitness accounts or they wanted a confession. And it's hard to get an eyewitness account of someone committing harmful magic, maleficium, right, at the behest mm-hmm. of the devil. You know, it's a, one doesn't, you see the after effects, but it's hard to catch someone in the act of an imagined crime, right? Um, so <laughs> other, pe- I mean, confessions themselves were the critical piece of evidence. Also things like the devil's mark, um, which is a sort of fascinating obsession of some of these um, folks involved in the Scottish witch trials, the the devil's mark was um, the the idea that when a witch entered into a pact with the devil, which is an inversion of the covenant with God, right? Mm -hmm. One of the reasons Scots are so obsessed with the pact is because it's a perfect inversion of the covenant they were were supposed to be making with God. But when the witch entered into this pact um, and would have sex with the devil, the devil would leave his mark on her body. See. Um, and there would be, you know, and usually, and when witches were tried, often they were searched for a mark, um, and it, this could be a mole, a third nipple, right? Various types of, of mm-hmm. birthmark, unusual, quote unquote, unusual things. Um, and that was seen as, as evidence, particularly if when it was pricked, it didn't feel pain. And there was, this, it was a genuine profession uh, in early modern Scotland to be a witch-prickered, right? To try and, and see if you could find the devil's mark and, and whether or not it bled.
0: It must be an interesting resume to have, then.
1: Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, you have you have corollaries to this, I should say, uh, in England and in other places, right? There's the famous right. witch finder general uh, Matthew Hopkins in the 1640s in England, who rides through the country during the English Civil Wars and gets people to actually pay him to hunt witches in their community, right? It's, uh, um, with a heavy dose of misogyny and abusiveness. So, oh yes, yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs>
0: And you've got a couple of projects in the work, but let's talk about this one first because you're not done with the devil yet, and the devil's not done with you. And you, you, you and your colleagues, working on an edited collection about the devil and Western thought uh, and the history of Satan in the Western tradition. Um, can you tell us more about that, and what and what your goals are for that, and what what more we hope to learn about uh, Satan and his uh, his presence in our lives?
1: Yeah. Um, first of all, I'll just say that that a couple of folks have made the comment to me that. In this moment in, t- in 2020, it's it's interesting to be studying the devil because might as well, since we're all already in hell, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is is fitting enough. Um,
0: we're only it, seven months in too. We got more it, time. We'll no,
1: exactly. There's, Satan has a lot more time. Um, no, anyway, the, this project is the uh, Rutledge History of the Devil in the Western Tradition. And I'm working on it with my colleagues, um, Richard Rayswell, uh, who's at the University of Prince Edward Island, and David Winter, who's at the University um, of Manitoba. And we worked on a project together a couple of years ago about um, sort of knowledge of spirits and demons in the early modern period. And as we were working on that project, we just kept saying, gosh, there's so much more to be said about Satan. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, and there's more to be said about Satan beyond the bounds of narrow chronologies and narrow geographical focuses. Because one of the things about the devil is, of course, he's loomed so large in the Western imagination from the sort of late antique period where he really developed in so many ways through the medieval era as he sort of rose in his power, the Reformation, but then has remained a really important part of our popular consciousness. Um, through the so-called enlightenment period and well into today where you have loads of beers named after the devil, you have um, the devil showing up as a character in South Park. I mean, we could we could go on and on. And of course, you know, things like in the 1980s, the satanic panics, right? Um, yeah. So one of the goals of this project is to ask how and how and why the devil has been so intrinsic to the construction of the Western mm-hmm. tradition. In some ways, the devil was and always has been a black mirror, right? A way that we try to negatively define ourselves. Um, the devil can be this repository for all these things about society we don't want to be. And I think we still use the concept of evil that way, right? Um, yeah. And in ways that are really um, dangerous at times. And so this is a project about the devil, why the devil still matters, mm-hmm. um, about demonization throughout history and about the people who both sought to understand the devil and the people who have been victims of those understandings. So it's a big volume, like 40, sorry, 30 chapters, um, all sorts of authors who are at the beginning of their career, at the end of their career, we're really excited about it. We have have chapters on things like the devil and war. So how ideas about Satan influenced warfare. Um, and these chapters are not chronologically bounded in a strict mm-hmm. way. They're meant to be kind of broad and encompassing. We have a chapter on the digital devil and the ways in which in gaming and internet speak the devil is part of that and how even in these sort of modern era we still allow demonological norms to frame some of our thinking
0: well, that sounds fascinating i'm i'm actually really looking forward to that and i have forgotten about satan in south park so thank you for yeah well
1: a, <laughs> i have a endless endless satan jokes that i could <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: so, well in addition to that you've got a couple other things going on that i want to talk about just briefly um, one is a digital project that actually is looking at of clergy in sixteenth uh, and seventeenth century Scotland, and then you're also writing a microhistory about, uh, I think, about a particular individual clergyman, and and so would you would you mind talking us through the digital project just briefly? And actually, I might, I you know, at some time later, we'll have to have you and Chris Langley, your your co-pilot on that project, on to talk about it more extensively. But uh, I want to hear a little bit about that, but then also talk briefly about this microhistory and and, uh, and and learn more about that project.
1: Yeah, so I am working with my colleague, Chris Langley, as you mentioned, who's um, a professor in Birmingham at uh, um, Newman University there. And this project is called Mapping the Scottish Reformation, and it's funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as the Strathmartin Trust, a granting body in Scotland. And its aim is to build a database and uh, interactive map of all the Scottish clergy between the Reformation in 1560 and the revolution in 1689. And the reason we wanted to do this, to build this sort of digital prosopography of these ministers is because they are a, you, you know, they're, you can't go anywhere in early modern Scotland and not meet a minister. I mean, there was a historian who famously said something about you couldn't swing a cat and not, you know, knock into a <sighs> clergyman, right? Um, there are just so many of them. But we actually don't know a ton about this group, right? Mm-hmm. We know about certain individuals who've published a bunch of sermons or who show up a lot um, in, you know, the General Assembly of Scotland or whatever, who are really important figures. But to date, we haven't really been able to ask questions like, what was the average tenure of a minister? Mm-hmm. And answer it in any efficient way. There's um, a really famous sort of calendar of Scottish ministers that was put together in the late 19th century that has a lot of this biographical data, but you can't search across volumes, there are 11 of them, uh, there are some errors, it hasn't really been checked against the manuscript material. So what we've been doing is going through the manuscripts of the Presbytery um, in the area where Edinburgh is, uh, in. The, the Presbytery is within the Synod of Lothian and Tweeddale, which is in um, in and around modern day Edinburgh and looking for aspects of clerical careers. So when they took up their post in a given parish, when they left, if they were deposed or suspended for any reason where they got their education. And that way we can ask big questions about Mm -hmm. ministerial careers, right? Um, patterns of movement where there are some regions of Scotland where people tended to stay for a long time Were there others where there was a lot of chaos and and sort of political hotspots where there was a lot of movement So trying to get to grips with the trajectories of the Scottish clergy as sort of a body and to build a tool that will be useful for um, for, for scholars who want to ask these questions and to do so in a way that connects them with the manuscript material um, We've been putting all of this data that we've gathered um, and we've gone through like 4,000 pages of Presbyterian records, um, and we've put it in um, onto Wikidata, mm-hmm. and we're using that to run sort of initial initial queries. Um, and eventually, we've we've just agreed to do this. We're partnering with the University of Edinburgh in the autumn uh, to build a pilot user interface, and so that will be put together in. Um, august september october and then certainly by the end of the year we hope to have that up and running so anybody who wants to be able to map these journeys of the ministers just within this one synod region right around modern day edinburgh they can do so and and then the goal is of course to expand this to all of scotland so well that's terrific ages um
0: and i know you and chris been working on it for a long time so i'm really excited to see uh this this version one here and and can folks follow along your progress now and 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 how can they do so
1: yeah, they can go to um, www.mappingthescottishreformation.org um, or follow us on Twitter at Mapping Scots Ref. Um, and yeah, I should actually say also, you would ask about my current book, which I would be excited to talk about. Yeah. So I clearly i am interested in ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in belief, these sorts of things. And my first book on the devil was really broad. So... 1560 to early 18th century, I think was probably too broad, actually. Um, I could name other flaws with it. But I wanted to do a more focused study. Um, and I love micro history as a genre. Um, you know, the study of a person, a place, an event, something that you can use to extrapolate broader trends about a given period and really understand the texture of, of life somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I am writing a book um, on the town of Ayr, which is in the southwestern part of Scotland, right on the sea. Um, it was a sort of radical city. It was a part of the sort of Covenanter heartland. So the most hard, a lot of the most hardcore Presbyterians come from this area. And they had the same minister for nearly 45 years, a guy called William Adair. And it's, that's an unusually long ministerial tenure in the 17th century through the chaos of the British civil wars, of the restoration, of increasing um, persecution by the Scottish crown of non-conformists and all sorts of crises happened during his tenure as minister of plague. There's some piracy, there's intense witch hunting, um, there's political rebellion. And I'm interested in thinking about the ways in which Protestant identity was Formed, expressed, and performed, really, in this community through those interlocking crises. So um, so I'm working on that, uh, and I'm hoping to write it in a way that it's accessible for both scholars and mm-hmm. students who want to learn about the really complex ecclesiastical and theological situation of 17th century Scotland.
0: Well, I want to pick up on this theme of microhistory for a second, and you and I have talked about this very briefly before, but microhistory is something that that American historians, or those of us who study early America or the United States, you know that's that is a pretty common feature. You know, we'll use an individual's life to look at larger trends, historical developments, see how things change over time. And I remember, if I remember rightly, you had you had said to me that you know a lot of Scottish historians don't practice macro history, and it's not something that it's part of the the Scottish historian's toolkit. And why is that, do you think? And then you know, what do you hope to achieve with this book that actually helps pave the way for others to follow you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be clear, there are some really great regional studies right? of yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the Reformation in Fife, for example, or um, in, in various parts. I mean, they're, so there, I don't want to say that there are no microhistories. There's also a really good um, microhistory that's sort of properly a microhistory um, on the blasphemies of Thomas Aikenhead, someone, the last person executed for the crime of blasphemy at the end of the 17th century in Scotland. Uh, it's by Michael Graham. It's a, it's a really good book. But in general, there hasn't been this attempt to write microhistories that at least in the sort of historiographies of early America or of Europe are written to be accessible for mm-hmm. students as well as scholars. And I think for historians of Scotland, there's often the sense that not from the historians themselves but there's a sense that the outside world of british historians or atlantic historians or european historians sees scotland as too small and marginal to have microhistorical historical studies done about about scotland right there is um this challenge i think actually there are lots of major presses for example who can be reticent to publish strictly scottish material because it's erroneously i would argue viewed as, as sort of parochial. And actually that's true of Scottish history writ large. Most schools in Scotland didn't even teach Scottish history until the 1970s. Um, And that maps on, of course, to the rise of nationalism and really thinking about Scottish identity as something distinct from Britain and the British Empire. Um, So I, I do, I think that that's led to a reticence to take on micro historical topics, which are incredibly deep dives into material. But I think actually, that at least in my view, what's great about microhistories and what I hope to do with what what I'm writing um, is show how a community like AIR was not just some off-the-beaten path Scottish community. It was, you know, densely intertwined with all of these other. Um, worlds and communities, right? You have traders going to Barbados by the middle of of the century. You have um, a lot of familial connections with Ireland because it's a port. You have Frenchmen and Dutchmen getting shipwrecked there. You have uh, Cromwell's army occupying the city for the entirety of the 1650s, all of which is to say early modern people were not confined to a space. Early modern clerics were not completely insular in their thinking. They were engaged with all these other communities of of belief and practice. And so I'm hoping in some ways to put Scotland both on the microhistorical map, Mm -hmm. but also to sort of dispel any idea that that Scotland was a backwater. Um, Because in fact, and particularly for communities on the water, they are um thoroughly bound up with a lot of really important developments particularly in the 17th century
0: well i think folks will be excited to see that when it comes out and certainly you know we'll have you back on the program to talk about that when whenever yeah. it's it's published um mickey thank you very much for taking the time i know it's it's a strange time where we had intended to actually sit outside and record but it's about 100 degrees in virginia right now so we decided that was not a great idea <laughs> so
1: no definitely not
0: So uh, take care of yourself, take care of your soul, and uh, come back and see us when uh, Mapping Scottish Reformation is in full swing, and uh, your new book is out.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ann Buskey, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media Department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.